0: Humanised Intelligence with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi and welcome to the latest episode of the Robohub podcast. Today we will be hearing from Professor Ayana Howard, Chair of the School of Interactive Computing at Georgia Tech. Dr Howard speaks with our interviewer Lauren about her research in humanised intelligence, and its applications to both human-robot interaction and science-driven robotics. In addition, she also walks us through the wide range of roles that she's filled throughout her career in robotics, from academia to entrepreneurship.
1: Welcome to RoboHub. Can I ask you to introduce yourself?
2: Yes, I'm Dr. Jana Howard. I'm Professor and Chair of School of Interactive
1: Computing at Georgia Tech. Thanks, and can you give a brief overview of your work? Um,
2: Yeah, so I have two pillars of research in my lab. One is focused on pediatric robotics, where we look at socially interactive robots, um, bring them into the home of children with special needs, primarily children with motor disabilities, some aspects of behavioral, and we use the robot as a coach for them to basically do exercise. The other area of research I look in is bias and trust in intelligent systems and looking at... At how we can design technology to mitigate some of the overtrust we see with people and robots, and then some of the biases that our systems inherently have, and how do we ensure that we have good outcomes for people without them overtrusting them or the systems being biased in how they work with individuals?
1: So you do some work with you know human robot interaction, but then you also have this external thread which is UAVs or exploring other planets. And so that's a line of your research as well.
2: Um, When I first started at Georgia Tech, I did a lot of work in science-driven robotics because I came from the NASA world. Um, And so I would say the first nine to 10 years that I was at Georgia Tech, I focused on science-driven robotics. So designing robots for hazardous environments to grab scientific data and instruments. Now the kind of work I do externally has shifted, it's not as much, but it's shifted to things like what? at autonomous cars, but really looking at the human interaction with the autonomy. So don't do as much in terms of science-driven robotics, but when we do deploy robots externally on the road, it's really looking at their interaction with people
1: still. And can you explain a little bit how you made that transition from science-driven robotics to human-robot interaction?
2: Yeah, so my research, uh, my thesis back in the day, was focused on um, roughly healthcare robotics. Of course, it wasn't called that. So at the time, I was looking at manipulation of deformable objects, and my kind of forte or what I was looking at was in hospital environments. So that really was focused on uh, manipulation with people in their environment. And then when I was at NASA and started leading my team, it was all science and robotics. And so some of the theory I brought in in terms of computer vision and and machine learning, uh, but didn't have as much of interaction. I worked with scientists and grabbing their information and data and trying to figure out how do I parlay their expertise to the robotic system, but it wasn't hands on interaction. And so when I came to tech, one of the nice things about being in academia, you can think of anything, and and I. I still wanted to do the science-driven robotics, but I also wanted to do things here that I felt could really impact uh, people on Earth versus other planets. Um, And so I kind of tried to figure out what I should look at. I looked back at my thesis, and all the things that I talked about, at least in future work, were just really becoming able to be deployed in a real-world environment, not in the lab. And so I kind of was baby-stepping a little bit into that, but still heavy in science-driven and so over the years, that shifted in terms of the emphasis.
1: Okay, so it seems that a lot of underlying principles are still very relevant in your work, but that the application space has shifted.
2: Yeah, so the application space has shifted a lot. The underlying theories and algorithms are very similar. The additional aspects, though, has been in more of the cognitive science, understanding modeling of human behavior. So that's been things that I've had to learn because I wasn't classically trained. Even working with scientists, it was modeling their their processes, but it was like, you know, this is step one, this is step two, so it was very much more cognitive. And now I have to learn how do you, you know, what is intent as well as can I predict behavior, which is different. So that's the additional theory that my group has had to develop. But the other things in terms of like computer vision and machine learning and artificial intelligence, those have been consistent throughout.
1: Right. So can you give me an example of one of the projects you're most excited about that kind of combines these more traditional robotics
2: topics with the more human side of things. Um, Yeah, so I will talk about one of the newest projects that we're looking at, which is looking at, uh, we're designing a wearable suit to do early, basically um, understanding the kicking behavior of infants in order to eventually provide clinicians a tool to do interventions. Um, And so with that, the kind of things we have to look at is, how do you get an infant to kick? Like, how do you motivate an infant to kick? And so we use a robot mobile that takes information from the the sensor suit. So we're looking at classical instruments that are on robotics, IMU, GPS, um, not GPS, IMU and gyroscopes. And we combine that to look at kicking behavior the mobile then provides input on how to get a child to kick more frequently, faster, or not at all. Um, and so that's like everything you can think of that's classical robotics in a space that's totally not thought of as science-driven robots or even, you know, humanoid robot interaction.
1: Right. So how are you guys getting this background to combine with the robotics expertise that you have?
2: Um, so there's, there's three ways. One is um, I pair up with a lot of experts in the field um, in terms of pediatrics and therapy and so um, there is some um, I learn from them and they learn from me so that's one uh, the other is that I go to conferences and I read papers that aren't robotics papers that are outside of my domain and basically train myself one of the nice things about having a PhD is that you're trained how to discover new things in areas you don't know uh, and so I use that skill to say okay this is an area that I don't know how do you do it you look at the state of the art you can look at the research you teach yourself and so that the the other aspect of it so one is collaborate with experts but also train myself so I understand the language and understand how to translate some of the -the state-of-the-art practices in that field to the robotics field.
1: Sure I imagine that's great advice for anyone looking to do really interdisciplinary research in robotics.
2: Yeah I mean it's, it's not for everyone because you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, a lot of times, as roboticists, we, we know we're the smartest people in the room, um, and in this case, you have to be okay with saying, okay, I'm not the expert in this field, and I'm willing to learn. And so, you have to be able to be a little bit humble in that, which isn't for everyone.
1: And I would imagine that, in addition to informing yourself about the cognitive sciences and, and how your robotics might interact, for example, an infant, you also are modeling something about the infant so you're directly integrating cognitive science and computer science
2: we are um and some of the if you think about what we're doing in that aspects we're also looking at early infant motor behaviors right and so there's some um, state-of-the-art uh, models that exist about you know the stages of infant kicking and things like that and so With our science, we're also trying to ensure that when we're grabbing sensor data and we're coming up with these models and we're learning these models using different machine learning methods, that the results from that, like in real time in the field, is matching what's been learned in the clinic and in in these uh, other studies, um, which is nice because it basically allows us to put the map behind some of the theory that's out there.
1: How do you evaluate that math?
2: Yeah, so we do um, a couple of things. Uh, First off, we use robots to do some of the basic validation. Uh, So what do we do? Uh, We put the sensor soup on robots. Um, Now we have truth data about kicking. So we model kicking of the various different types of infant kicking behavior. And then we look at the data and we say, okay, we have the truth. We know the velocity. We know the profile of the kicking because we programmed it. Okay, what does our sensor suit tell us and our algorithms? And do they match. And what's the error? So that's where we start. And then the next stage is because the robot doesn't kick exactly like an infant, we go into the simulation stage where there's a bunch of tools that are out there uh, that allow basically modeling of movements, walking movements, they're they're basically 3D tools. Um, So then we look at that. Again, we have truth. Uh, Let's model also our sensors. And then the last is with actual infants.
1: Sure. And I imagine that helps to mitigate some of the challenges that come with working with such a difficult population. Because I'm sure bringing infants into the lab that day is perhaps not feasible.
2: Uh, yeah. So working with infants, one philosophy we do have is we go into the infants' homes. We very rarely bring our population to the lab. We only do that with adults and students. But one of the things we want to make sure is that our methods and our tools and our robotic devices work in the wild. And the only way you can test that is you actually deploy in the wild, even when it's early on, because if you design In the lab, 100% guaranteed it's not going to work in the wild. I have enough experience to know that now and have known that for a while. And so it takes longer to develop, but at the end, you don't have to go back and try to fix something. And at the end, we can show that it does change outcomes for kids in the wild, in the home, in the clinic, um, in their natural environment.
1: That's great to hear. So, you also have a company.
2: I do. Um, I have a company, Zy Robotics, uh, and we focus on accessible um, STEM tools and learning games for early childhood education.
1: And that's based on research that's come out of your lab.
2: Yeah, so uh, Zyrobotics licenses technology from my lab at Georgia Tech, mainly the algorithms, some of the hardware components, um, and they deploy it in primarily uh, parents, school districts, and clinics.
1: How did you decide, you know, you were developing this research, how did you decide that it was at the stage where it was ready to be deployed into a product in a company that could be used by kids in real time? Because so often with With research, you know, we deploy and then we have to take the products back or we deploy, but, you know, it's not quite as robust because we're really looking at some specific research topic. How did you decide to move this from research into a product and a business?
2: Um, actually circumstances uh, decided, um, so back in the day I had a grad student in one Park, um, and she was trying to decide kind of, you know, faculty, research scientist startup, um, and there was a program called NSF i Core. um, she's like, you know, I think we should, we should go for this, um, and she had designed for part of her thesis an interface device. Uh, for um, individuals with motor disabilities, um, her and the couple of, of undergrad students. Um, and so that's what we had put in. And part of that process is that you have to talk to a lot of people. Uh, they call them customers. And through that process, came to the realization that there was definitely a need for technology that could be used and deployed for um, special populations. Um, and you couldn't do that widespread in an academic environment you really needed to have a company to go for it because after a certain point it's no longer research it's development and engineering and marketing right and as academics that's not you know we don't get grants to do marketing right we very rarely get grants to do engineering we might get it for development but it's really about research Um, and so that was the point where either I wanted it to continue and be widespread, or I would just put it in, you know, the lab, and we would just use it for the studies. Um, I decided to make a go for it, and five and a half years later, the company's still uh, going strong.
1: Wow. So starting this company really, for you, was a way to bring the research that you saw having such a benefit into the real world and have kind of a longer-term impact instead of, you know, determining the impact and then having to kind of reel back for the next study.
2: Correct. It was a way to keep the the research alive in in that fashion and and really have more of a widespread impact. I mean, for example, the uh, therapy and educational apps, I think Cirebotics is about half a million downloads. Like as an academic, like there's no way I'm going to impact a half a million people, just me and my students. I mean, that's that's impossible and infeasible without um, without a company doing it.
1: Can you tell me a little bit about what it's like to be both a professor and an entrepreneur? What is the skill set needed to take your work from?
2: research to a product um, so I will be honest the skill sets to be an entrepreneur are are in some ways very different and in some ways very similar to being an academic um, so as a professor if you think about the labs we are a type of company right we have to raise money i.e. through grants for our you know team which is our grad students um, we have to think about what our deliverables are we do have timelines however long the grant is. Um, And so we do have these things and we have to report out to a sponsor. Um, And those skills are very much the same in terms of uh, doing a startup But the things that are different um, as academics, we typically, most of us like fundamental research, right? It's like, I have an idea and I design a prototype. Um, The skills are different from going from a prototype to a product, and those are very different skills. Uh, It's the tweaking the last 10% to get it working. It's understanding that sometimes the best technological solution is not the best solution for people, right? It's also understanding that you may, might make decisions based on costs versus anything else. Um, and those are almost counterintuitive to being an academic. Uh, so you have to learn how to be okay with different objective functions.
1: Can you tell me also from a personal side, how are you able to manage being a full-time professor with students who rely on you, and also starting a company? What was that like for you?
2: Yeah, so right now it's it's, it's fairly easy because I don't the products are out there, and so for me it really is is more my uh, tweaking of okay what's the next step, what should we do? Um, early on it was a lot harder because. It was um, my thoughts my ideas and I so what I did is I brought a team together that could that was really good at implementation and figuring that out um, because that was a deficit that I knew I had as an academic as a researcher Uh, but that was the first couple of years was was quite difficult trying to figure out what's your market Um, you know I knew what my market was as an academic it's quite different in uh, corporate and the startup world Uh, I had to figure out and think about how do you raise um, and that's beyond like you know grants Um, as you know as an academic you know the university subsidizes uh, a lot of our um, grants because you know as a student we do a stipend but that's not market rate right like students aren't making market rate making student rates and so how to use raise in a startup company when you're having to pay close to market rate or as close as possible um, so yeah those first two years um, I had to figure out how to juggle and how to balance um, and I won't say it was easy uh, I had to reduce trips quite a bit in terms of travel um, in order to make that happen but it, it was it ended up being okay. Um, and a lot of um, why I'm kind of proud of five and a half years, like most startups, uh, five years is kind of the grail. You fail before five years. That's like, that's the standard. Um, and businesses fail because they run out of money. That's what I was told day one. Businesses don't fail because they, you know, don't have a great technology. They fail because they run out of money, period. Um, And why do you run out of money? Because you can't figure out how to raise or uh, you can't figure out who to sell to and things like that.
1: So by taking on this role, you were able to kind of stay in both positions. Correct, correct. Can you tell me a little bit about kind of what your advice is for rising PhD students who are looking to both make a difference in the real world and also be an academia because it seems like you've, you've kind of straddled both worlds pretty well.
2: Yeah, so um, when I was going through my PhD, I, I being an academic was not my career goal. Really? Uh, mm. Yeah, so NASA they funded my master's. Um, I because I was at JPL, I continued to work at JPL while going through my PhD. Um, so I was a you know full time student, and I was a part time JPLer.
1: But you mentioned your PhD research wasn't in human robot interaction as well. So how did those topics combine?
2: Well, so um, the combination there was about a fifty percent overlap because what I was doing at, at JPL was um, using neural networks to do basically train modeling um, for intelligent systems, Um, and so and we were using elements of computer vision and neural networks. In my thesis, there was a human component, but I was also using machine machine vision and neural networks, and so that was the 50% overlap in terms of thinking about the theories and inputs and how do you design backpropagation and and things like that. That was very much the same, very similar, Uh, and then there was the other components that were different. Uh, But it ended up working well. I became a superset of all the things that were involved in robotics and AI. Uh, And so when I started at NASA full time after finishing my PhD in 99, um, basically it was, I ran because I'd been there for such a long time. I knew folks. um, My supervisor actually changed groups at the time. um, And he was like, okay, here's your team. This is what I want you to do. uh, Which was like fairly young. And people think it was oh you're so young you just started working it's like no 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 remember i've been at nasa like for years already uh people have forgotten that i was a student right because i've been there um and so for them was like oh now you have a degree we can put you away because now you have the credentials to do kind of what you've sort of been doing already
1: sure so it's, it's kind of like your research now you have this great base in computer science and the the technical skills or the technical kind of modeling skills that are required for various different robotics and computer science projects, but because you are, you know, willing to leap into these different fields and learn kind of the interdisciplinary measures, you're able to apply it to a variety of projects.
2: A variety of projects. Um, I I would say... In in terms of the PhD, what you're supposed to be able to be comfortable with is being able to do that. Um, I think a lot of times, though, when you're good at something, even if you get bored, you're like, but I'm good at this. I should just keep doing that. Um, For me, it's always been a, I need to be excited about what I'm doing. I don't necessarily have to feel like I'm good at it because... the PhD gave me the skills to eventually be good at it, right? And so, and I'm okay with that, because I'd rather be a learner, like all my life, like learning new things, and then being like, oh, I'm an expert in that, let's move on. Like that process is what excites me. It doesn't necessarily excite me to be like, oh, I'm doing the same thing, and this is boring, and yeah, I'm good at it, but it's boring. That doesn't excite
1: me. So, what advice do you have on PhD students looking to, as you do, be involved in such a
2: variety of topics? Um so I would say um one is figure out which you're interested in. And sometimes that's doing things that you eventually realize you're not interested in. Like I talk about all the things that have excited me. I've worked on a bunch of other things that I did. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm not doing that, right? And it's okay, it's like I did it, I would have done it for a year, and I always give myself a year for anything.
1: You know, people don't always bring up the things that were hard along the way, so, you know, it's, it's great that you mentioned that.
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's, there's a lot of things that are hard along the way that you don't like. They're like, why am I doing this? But that's part of the process, right? That's one, allows you the skill as you continue to evolve in, in your career, that also allows you to start recognizing when to say yes and when to say no, right? It's like, oh no, I'm not doing that because I did that like, you know, five years ago and I hated it. No, I'm not doing that. Versus like, I don't know what that's like. Let's try it. And I'll try it for a year. And then it's like, oh yeah, okay. Let me add that to my, I do not like list.
1: Sure. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for coming on. We've enjoyed it. And thank you so much for the great interview.
0: Thank you. Have a good one. And that's all for today. As always, if you have not had enough yet, visit us at RoboHub.org forward slash podcast for loads more exciting episodes. And if you enjoy the RoboHub podcast, why not check out our Patreon campaign as well? Our podcast is entirely run by an international team of volunteers from across the globe. Thanks to our generous patrons, we can cover more topics, speak to more people and cover more events. So if you can spare a few dollars a month, Find out more about becoming a supporter at robohub.org forward slash podcast. We'll be back in two weeks time. Until then, goodbye. Humanized Intelligence with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.